My name is Ian. I can't tell you my last name or where we live, because then they might find us. And if they found us, well, we just won't let them find us. Hello and welcome to the Fan Fiction Tapes. As you can tell from that intro, today is a bit of a special episode. My name is Ian, pronouns he, him, and I'm taking over the host seat today, and I'm joined today by... Uh, just me. It's Maya. Pronouns she, her. Uh, I could tell you where I live, but, uh, then I'd have to disable the landmines, and I don't want to do that. (laughs) Okay. This will be our last episode of this season and the last episode in 2023, so I decided to give myself a little treat. This is a story spotlight on Animorphs. So, if you were alive in the 90s or early aughts, you may have seen these weird books with, uh, you know, the people transitioning into animals as the book cover and thought, that looks weird, and then kept walking. Those are the Animorphs books, and they are hardcore. Yeah, I think I saw the funky-ass cover uh, when I was... I was definitely in middle school or high school at this point. It was just like, eh, uh, wouldn't have been in middle in high school. It would have been probably middle school. I just picked it up from the library. and was like, why not? Uh, that was a choice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So K.A. Applegate is the pen name for a wife and husband pair, Catherine Applegate and Michael Grant. Primarily, Catherine Applegate. Animorphs is a YA science fiction book series uh, that ran originally from 1996 to 2001, consisting of 54 main series books with eight canon companion books. And the general outline of the story is that five teenagers stumble their way into a secret alien invasion when they take a shortcut home from the mall and encounter a dying Andalite prince. The Andalites, in this case, are the good guy aliens, and he has received a fatal injury in a spaceship combat over Earth with the Yerks who are the bad guy aliens in this case. He is dying, but he manages to give the five human teenagers one special power before uh, the Yerks show up to kill him. Uh, He gives them the ability to turn into any animal they can touch. And so they become the Animorphs. Uh, Shortly after uh, giving them the power, we are treated to the scene of the main bad guy, Visser 3, showing up and eating the Andalite prince, Elfangor. And that tells you right away, the, this story for children does not shy away from body horror or the horrors of war. It does not. Uh, the first book, I've not read the whole series. I've read chunks of it when I was younger, and I... Of course, in preparation for this, reread the first book. Yeah, it gets um much stronger. I, th- I think that's honestly a really good thing about the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. It's 
in my opinion, it is important for stories, even for kids, to not... I wouldn't say you need to go out of your way to show the bleakness of, of... that the world can achieve, but... I mean, if you're telling a war story. Yes. If you're telling a war story, I think it is better to show the bleakness than to promote the quote-unquote glory. Yeah, I know I was influenced, in my opinion, on that by Star Wars The Clone Wars, although I imagine you were more directly influenced by Animorphs itself. Yeah, I was actually at an age to read these during the original run. I was uh, barely alive during the original run. I mean, they ended. It ended in May two thousand one. So yeah. So actually, I I wasn't even on this earth. I mean, okay, technically I was, but you know, I wasn't a living being. Yeah, I. Uh, okay, so the main series books came out at a rate of about one a month, and I remember waiting for each. Scholastic Book Fair to get the latest episodes. Christ, one a month. There were ghostwriters involved for a lot of the middle part yeah, of the series. Yeah, I, I do know there were there were ghostwriters involved, but just like releasing a book once a month—that's insane. And that, that explains why they had fifty-four books in what uh, seven, eight years. Actually, one minute. Uh, no, math. five years. Five Same years. difference. I think it was mostly during the school yeah, year five. that it was every month or so. That I, that's, I think there was like a break for the summer, but like that makes there it were worse. Also, there were also the that's not even counting the companion books, which are um, bigger. Like the main the main series books are are they're, they're on the smaller short. side. Yeah, they're, they're like two hundred pages, maybe max. Yeah, this was this was basically um, before Harry Potter proved that young audiences are willing to read 500 page books. I even after the Harry Potter series proved that there were popular book series, especially through Scholastic, that. Did not go to 500 pages, I'm thinking notoriously of the 39 clues. Because that was, I suppose you could say that was my Animorphs. Uh, I should reread that at some point. Later. That series was, um, all, all those books were about the same length, I think, as the, the Animorphs books. Sorry, I got us off track. Oh, that's fine. I want to circle back to that Horrors of War bit. So, you may have heard me putting putting verbal quotation marks around the terms good guy aliens and bad guy aliens at the beginning there. Yeah, I could I could hear that. Yeah. See, one of the themes of the book is that there are no good guys in war. The Yurk Empire is pretty explicitly bad with a capital B. The structure of it is fascistic the it is it is common to gain promotion through uh, assassination and yurks are only known a, a lot of yurks are known only by their rank the 
main villain of the series for most of the series is Visser Three, Visser being uh, a rank like general, and Three meaning he's the third ranking general in the entire Yurk Empire. He eventually makes his way up to Visser One by undermining the previous Visser One. However, the Andalites who are fighting against the Yurks, we initially see Elfanger, and he leaves a glowing impression on the Animorphs. Uh, within a few books, they actually rescue his younger brother, who also survived the battle, and who joins the team as their sixth ranger, uh, Aximile, or Ax for short. And he becomes a, one of the viewpoint characters. But as we run into other Andalites throughout the story, we learn that they are, or particularly the military cast of the Andalites, is very ruthless. And the Andalites themselves also in general, seem to have this superiority complex towards other creatures. Always fun. Yeah. They kind of blame themselves for the existence of the Yurk Empire, which is arguable. It was a Andalite survey team who initially found the Yurks. And at this point, I should explain something about the Yurks that I haven't mentioned yet. The Yurks in their natural state are blind slugs. They are parasites with no sense of sight and no sense of hearing, only taste and smell. But they have the ability to hijack the brains of sentient beings. On their native homeworld, there is a, I, I think they're described as sub-sapient species called the Ged, that are the Yurk's natural hosts. When an Andalite scientist arrives on the Yurk homeworld and discovers the Yurks and the Ged, he starts to give them technology. Oh boy. What could possibly go wrong with this? Yes. A faction of Yurks then steal some ships and some laser guns and go tearing off across the galaxy. And that sparks off both the Andalite-Yurk War and causes the Andalites to institute a law that they cannot share technology with, quote-unquote, lesser races. This is... important because it actually recontextualizes the first meeting between the Animorphs, and Elfangor. Uh, Elfangor was a war hero, but by giving the Animorphs the morphing power, he actually broke that law 
Uh, and that's actually something that Axe grapples with at first. Uh, and throughout the series, Axe grapples with what he has seen of humans and what his Andalite upbringing tells him how, how he should behave towards the humans. Um, one example of the ruthlessness of the Andalites uh, is briefly discussed in the main series, but is really gone into detail in one of the companion books, uh, the Hork-Bajir Chronicles. The main shock trooper slave race of the Yerks are the Hork-Bajir, who are described as seven-foot-tall uh, lizards covered in blades. Fascinating. Yeah. Despite their fearsome appearance, however, it is revealed that the Hork-Bajir are naturally herbivores. Their blades are for eating bark. I mean, yeah, bark is kind of tough as shit. Yeah. They're also naturally fairly sweet and kind of stupid for the most part. Uh, they were, it turns out, genetically engineered to maintain a biosphere of giant trees after uh, their home world was hit by an asteroid. And so there's uh, a giant chasm running around the equator of their home planet that is basically the only place that's still inhabitable. Huh. That's neat. It is. Not to go too, too deep into spoiler territory there. Um, however, when the Yerks find them, they think, oh, seven-foot-tall walking razor blades. These will make excellent soldiers. And they manage to make a lot of headway into uh, enslaving the Hork-Bajir before the Andalites sh show up to fight them. And the Andalites don't show up in enough force and start losing the war, and so the general decides to unleash a bioweapon to kill all of the Hork-Bajir before the Yerks can get to them. Jesus, I was going to make a joke about headway and heads, uh, and then you said that. Yeah. It doesn't entirely work, fortunately. But, um... That is the thing that the Andalites did. Uh, and later in the series, uh, they almost do the same thing to Earth. Because they did not realize how important Earth was turning out to be for the Yerk Empire. And they didn't show up in enough force, or soon enough. And when they did get there, they went... Oh shit, we can't stop this. Well, too bad for the humans, but we can't let the Yerks have this many bodies. I... And, yeah. 
Do they have no response when they fuck something up other than to just gas the planet? So far? Not really. They seem to be going willing to, the, the military at least, seems to be going willing to go to any lengths to defeat the Yerks. There seems to be some amount of um, cultural pride to them about it on account of they kind of see the Yerks as their mistake. But also, Andalites are worth more than any other race, so in their view. Wow, yeah. That would do it. Not all Andalites share that view, of course. Um, We do actually get to spend some time with uh, Elfangor in the Andalite Chronicles. And, of course, Aximile is a viewpoint character from... I want to say book six onwards... Or it might be that book six is one where he actually joins the team. But anyways, he is a regular... So, I suppose this might be a good point to digress into a little bit about the structure of the series itself. Could be, yeah. Yeah. So there are initially five, eventually six main characters. Each book is written from a single point of view... And the viewpoint character rotates between the books. First one is Jake, correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah, I thought that was. The main cast is Jake, Tobias, the it's... whiny one, uh, <laughs> Rachel, <laughs> and Cassie. Uh, the whiny one is Marco. Yes. Yeah, that one. Uh, I knew it started with an M. Yeah. Jake and Marco are best friends. Rachel and Cassie are best friends. And Tobias is a bully magnet that hangs around Jake sometimes because Jake rescued him from bullies once. I mean, that's an excellent uh, strategy to avoid getting bullied. Yes. Hang around Uh, someone who claps back. Yep, yep. Uh, Rachel and Jake are also cousins, and Jake has a crush on Cassie. Uh, Cassie also has a crush on Jake. Their relationship develops a bit over the course of the series, and eventually at the end doesn't work out, because the war. (laughs) Uh, That's one way of putting it from what I remember if you've told, from what you've told me. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember what brought me into this tangent, so let's talk about the Animorphs themselves. So, Jake 
as we've described, is the leader of the group. Uh, and he's kind of the leader because everybody else decided he was. Uh, he just seems to have the riz for it for some reason. Am I using that word correctly? Uh, sounds about right. I think he's kind okay. of honestly just more elected leader by last person standing. Um, in terms of no one else wants to do it, he doesn't really want to either, but he will. That was at least my take from the first book. Yeah, that seems that's that's about right. He's uh, like it's it's when that if he's yeah, you're. You ask for someone to do something, and everyone but you walks away. Kind of thing. If that makes sense. Yes. And it kind of shows over the course of the series that he is kind of the best choice for it. Uh, there are various points where other Animorphs have to take over the leadership role temporarily. Um, because... This is a secret war, so they're fighting the Yurk invasion on their free time, but still trying to maintain a cover of normal life. So every so often, someone will have uh, family events that take them out of the picture for a bit. There are a couple of interesting things around timing in the setup of it um the first important thing so the yurks are parasites that take over your brain however they have to leave their host every three days to feed and this is basically the only way that the anamorphs have of figuring out who is a controller, that being controller being the term for someone who is uh, a yerk puppet. Yeah. They learn early on about a front organization called The Sharing that is basically the recruitment tool for the Yurk invasion. If it's you mix um, Boy Scouts of America with the Catholic Church uh, and a large packet of Kool-Aid, you get about the right vibes. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty close. Uh, so, they start with people who are in the sharing and follow them to figure out where the Yurk pool is. And then they just watch down entrances of the Eric Pool for people who are coming and going on a regular schedule every three days. And it's not perfect. But it's basically the only way that you can tell. Well, there, there were some other tells, at least early on. In the books. Yeah, it kind of depends on how good the Yerk is at... Yurking. accessing their host's memories. How could they are yurking? Because <laughs> I remember the first book, Jake's brother is like really obviously uh, puppeted. 
because he's lost all his former interests. Oh yeah, it it's it's really clear early on for Tom. However, Tom's yerk gets changed out. Oh boy. Uh, a few books in. And the one that takes over is a lot better at it. Uh a lot of Tom's old personality starts to resurface. Uh he's cracking jokes like he used to. He's showing some of his old interests again. So it really is in the skill of the Yerk. And Tom actually, Tom's new Yerk actually becomes a major secondary villain towards the end of the series. Oh boy. Yeah. Well, we have teased the end of the series a couple of times throughout the episode. Mm. Are we going to get into that at any point? I mean, you're still reading it, but on the other hand... I do know what happens. We're well... Yeah. Okay. You've told me this before. So... The series ends Okay, well It is foreshadowed early on Um Let me back that up It is foreshadowed in one of the companion books, The Elemist Chronicles, which came out somewhere in the middle-ish part of the series, that one of the Animorphs is going to die at the end. In the final acts of the series... Tom's Yerk is trying to rally his own fashion faction uh, against both the Animorphs and Visser, formerly Visser 3, now Visser 1. Uh, the Animorphs have Visser 1 backed into a corner with Tom's help. But they both know that they are going to betray each other. Well, of course. And so Jake had sent Rachel to infiltrate Tom's blade ship and take him out. Remember, Rachel is Jake's cousin. Tom is Jake's brother. Yeah, that's that's a little uh, that's already a little messed up. And Rachel succeeds, but she dies in the process, and the blade ship gets away. Now, does she kill Tom or Tom's yerk? She kills Tom. Oh, and and she gets she gets them both, but she kills Tom. 
That's pretty heavy. Yep. Also, I think it was about one book earlier. Um, Jake does a war crime. <laughs> oh boy, which war crime? I think technically the Animorphs are committing a lot of war crimes with the whole uh, shape-shifting bit. Yeah, probably. Um, they take over uh, the Yerk pool ship, which is basically the, the main mothership for the Yerks that has a pool containing thousands of Yerks. Who are all technically civilians? Argu well, who are arguably civilians, uh, depending on how you view the structure of the Empire. Uh, and Jake orders the pool to be flushed into space. Yeah, I, I remember hearing about that at some point. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty horrifying war crime. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, at that point, for the main characters, I believe it's... They kind of have, view it at this point as genocide or be genocided. It kind of is at that point. Um, the original Visser 1 insisted on a secret invasion... Uh, because she realized that there are way more humans than there are Yerks. And even though Yerk technology is much more advanced than human technology at the time, sheer numbers can still do get the job done. A yeah, I mean, there's a... a <clears throat> There's a lot of real-world scenarios where Empire rolls up, attempts to ruin someone's day, and fails. Even yep. though they technically had far superior technology. Yep. A Horkbajer will die just as easily to a 9mm bullet as to a Dracon beam. Really? Only 9mm? Well... I mean, it makes sense, but, like... They're tough, and they heal quickly, but they're still, you know, biological creatures. Yeah. It it might take a little more work to kill a Horkbajur than to kill a human, but still. I mean... What'll kill a human will get the job done. Yeah, but 9 mil won't always get the job done on people. Depends on shot placement. True. You shoot someone in the foot, they're not going to die for a while. I mean... I'm going, I'm going to assume that you have more uh, experience with that than I do. Um, yeah, I mean, it's besides the point, because, well, yes, 90mm might not always do the job, uh... We have, you know, 155. 
which for those who aren't familiar with that uh, is the caliber of artillery shells. Ah, 155 millimeter. Yes. That'll definitely do the job. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's... That's honestly something I think isn't really, in my opinion, dealt with well enough in a lot of sci-fi media of, yeah, sure, maybe they have way better technology than humans. That's actually to be expected if there's an invading alien force uh, because they managed to get here in a reasonable amount of time. But... Human weapons are still good at fucking up living things. Yep. And Visser 1 recognized that, and that's why she went for the subtle approach. This is conveniently also way more horrifying than just outright invasion. Yes. Yes, it is. Um... Now, you may be wondering what it is about... Uh, humans that makes them so important to the uh, Yerk war effort that basically by the end of the series, victory on Earth really is victory for the entire war. The humans answer is we fought. The answer, yes. Actually, it's. Not just humans, Earth in general is the most biologically diverse planet known to the Erks or to the Andalites. Not only are there more humans than there are of any other single sapient species, there's just more varieties of animal on Earth in general. That is an interesting take on... Um Biodiversity. So I've seen a lot of the, um, you know, the Earth is a death world type stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah. And humans are a little batshit insane for living here, uh, because I happen to enjoy that type of sci-fi. But I don't think I've seen the Earth has a really, really biologically diverse population before. Do you it, know if there's, like, an impetus behind that? I'm not entirely sure. Um, it, is, it is something that is explicitly pointed out by Axe at one point that I, that I remember. Um, like, he mentions that the Andalite homeworld total has, like, seven species of birds. Like, birds in general. Wow. I might be misremembering the exact number, but it's... it's Something like that. Yeah, yeah. Single digits, maybe low double digits. I don't know what would be what 
what the actual reason is for making Earth distinct in this particular way. It might be just to make Earth distinct in a particular way. Uh, to make it fascinating to these advanced aliens. Earth is special for having so much life. Which does uh, actually touch on the conflict between Elemist and Krayak, I think. Which, uh... So I mentioned the Elemist Chronicles a few minutes ago. That you did? The Elemist is basically, um... Alien Space Jesus... And Krayak is alien space Satan. There is some wacky shit that goes on in these books. Beyond just the, you know, horrifying way that morphing is described, and I just realized I didn't, I didn't mention that yet, the description of morphing is body horror. But I was talking about the other weird shit that goes on here. There's this background conflict going on that we learn about through bits and pieces and eventually in more detail in the Elemist Chronicles. Um, where it turns out that um, God is an alien gamer. You've mentioned this to me before, but every time you say it, I go, wait, what? And my brain shorts. If I had a nickel for every book series I've read where God is a Twitch streamer, I would have two nickels. It took me a minute to get that one. I was kind of sat there going, wait. Uh -huh. And then it clicked. Um, and the funny thing is, I've said that as the um, no context spoiler for that series uh, when talking <laughs> to some of my friends. Yeah. 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 It turns out uh, in the Animorph series, the closest thing to God in this galaxy uh, is the last member of a species of bird-like aliens uh, who played a lot of video games uh, and accidentally got themselves wiped out because they broadcast a recording of themselves playing Sims and somebody else thought they were um, committing genocides and struck proactively. And this resulted in a few refugees wandering around in a spaceship until they encountered a hive mind alien and merged. And the one named Tuman became the uh, the dominant consciousness 
and eventually got half sucked into a black hole and managed to merge with the fabric of space time itself. And from that point on, just went by his gamer tag, Elamist. That's literally the Elamist Chronicles in a nutshell. Wow. That sounds painful, I'm not going to lie. It did sound painful. Anyways, uh, during the course of the Elemist Chronicles, he encounters a being called Krayak, uh, who was exiled from another galaxy by an even more powerful being that we don't know anything about. We never find anything out ab about it, except that it's the reason that Krayak is here, causing problems for us. Uh, the conflict just seems to boil down to Krayak is omnicidal and Elemist is the only one that can stop him. Uh, so Elemist's strategy seems to be to just seed life on as many planets as possible. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing this may actually be the reason for the low biodiversity on most worlds, because by the he, he does come across Earth, but by the time he encounters Earth for the first time, it's already uh, sometime in, like, the Cretaceous period. So... Earth already had a good thing going by the time Elemist shows up. But if it's just one being responsible for putting life on most planets through the galaxy, that probably explains why the diversity is kind of low in most places. Yeah, I mean, that would, that would do it. Anyway, that's that is just a theory that I literally just came up with. I have managed to ramble for about 45 minutes now. And we haven't even gotten to my favorite part. The queer themes. To the shock of no one, that's my favorite part. So this was a book series written in the 90s. There's only so much they can get away with explicitly. Um, the biggest point where that shows up is with two Andalites who show up later in the series uh, named uh, Myrtle and Gaffinillan. They are, when, when, uh, words. They're both male. 
and described as the closest of companions. And the first scene, I think, where we see them both together, they greet each other with an Andalite gesture that had been described in a previous book as basically the Andalite equivalent of kissing. So this is about as unsubtle as the books ever get about same-sex relationships. And Applegate has said that they tried to push it as much as they could get away with in a 90s Scholastic YA series. I mean, I'm surprised with how much Applegate got away with because uh, Tobias. So I know we've talked about Tobias before, probably on other episodes and possibly just in conversation. Off the podcast, yes. Yeah. We, we've talked about it off the podcast, I believe. Yeah. Um, so I have managed to confirm Tobias is not an intentional trans allegory, but Applegate does support the Fanon headcanon of Tobias as trans and has said that if she were going to rewrite it today, she probably would make that canon. Yeah, I th there's really strong implications through it, as well as also just the Yerks don't have gender. Like, that's, that is more than I would have expected from a book even into the, like, late 2010s for something that was coming through a mainstream publisher and marketed at children. Yeah. You, you may have noticed I, I use the pronouns he for Visser 3 and she for Visser 1, and it's a convention in the books that Yerks always use the same pronoun as their current or most recent host. And we actually see in a few cases where a Yerk changes from a host of one gender to a host of a different gender and then goes by different pronouns. I think we even see that with Visser 1 in uh, the companion book Visser, where Visser 1 goes from a male host to a female host. And changes from he pronouns to she pronouns. Yeah. Um, something like that just existing as a concept. That's more than I would have expected from the time. Mm -hmm. Another piece of queer fan headcanon that the authors support is... Uh, the headcanon of Marco being bi. And also, uh, uh, how, how, okay, so when the Animorphs first rescue Axe, uh, he decides that he needs, well, they all decide that he needs to acquire a human morph so that he can uh, move about more or less openly. But it, 
the thing about the morphing is that it creates an exact copy of whatever you're morphing. So if he just acquired one of them, you know, suddenly there would be two Jakes or two Rachels or whatever. Uh, however, he reveals that there is a technique for creating a unique morph where he can acquire DNA from multiple uh, people and blend that together to create a new morph. His human morph involves DNA from Jake, Marco, Rachel, and Cassie. Right. Makes sense. And is described as pretty and androgynous. Huh. So arguably, human acts is intersex. I mean, that tracks, given the DNA sources? Ow. But back to Tobias... Changing positions. What was I talking about? Tobias. Right. So Tobias. I think so. The reason that Tobias gets viewed as a trans allegory One of the time limits in the books, I was going to bring this up earlier because I mentioned there's a couple ways that time limits come in, and then I just talked about the Yerks, but the morphing power itself has a time limit built in as well. You have two hours, and then you have to change back or you get stuck. And in the first book... Uh, the Animorphs make the unwise decision to try and raid the Yerk Pool. Four of them get out. But Tobias, in Hawkmorph, does not. He has to find a place to hide. And by the time that he can get out, the time limit is passed. And he is stuck as a red-tailed hawk. And, and that's permanent, right? It is. There's some Elemis shenanigans later. He gets the ability to morph, but his, de but his default form from that point onwards is hawk. And he has to struggle with uh, his... He struggles with his identity from that point onwards. Is he human or is he Hawk? Even after he regains his morphing ability and the Elemis takes him back in time that he can reacquire his own body as a morph, 
he would have the option at that point of simply morphing human and staying that way until the two-hour time limit passes, and he never does. Even at the end of the series, he just goes off to live as a hawk. Hmm. That is, I'm not, I guess I'll just have to read to that point to see how I feel about that. Yeah. There's a lot that goes on in between. I am skipping over. Yeah. So much. Like. A large part of the reason that he just fucks off into the wilderness at the end has to do with what happens to Rachel. Yeah, I can see why that would do it. Um... Oh, yeah, and did I mention that uh, also due to Elemis shenanigans, Elfanger is his father? Yes, I pulled up the Seropedia for Tobias that have been mm-hmm. reading through that as kind of like a... All right, I need a little bit of context. And it, it opens with the, he's the son of Elfanger. And I'm like, what? Like I said, Elemis shenanigans. Talk about a gamer moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> oh, I didn't... I forgot to put this in the script. Um, besides the queer... Th- besides the queer themes that we've mentioned, uh... Some also, some neurodivergent themes, I think. Um, Definitely some, yeah, I would agree. Marco kind of comes across as ADHD to me. He was... He's always been my favorite character, personally. Uh, I, um... Well, I mean, I haven't really read enough recently to say much, but... I think there's probably a lot more characters that have a lot of neurodivergent traits than... are... intentionally and actively recognized as such... true i want to see what you think about the way that that acts acts in human human morph isn't acts like really fucking weird i I recall hearing that he uh is particularly 
impacted by the sense of taste. And will Keep in mind. taste just about anything. It's not just the sense of taste. It's also, also the smell? way that humans... Well, no. Um, talking. Ah. Uh, because Andalites don't have mouths. Right. They just do the whole... Um, they, they, thing. Yeah, they have they they yeah, they communicate telepathically. So Wait, so how do Andalites acquire nutrients if they can't uh, They absorb them through their hooves. Well, that's not honestly the weirdest thing I've read. Yeah. So Granted, I read worms, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when Axe is in human form, um, he gets distracted by his mouth a lot, both in terms of things that he can taste, um, such as cigarette butts, cinnamon buns, and the delicious beverage known as vinegar. But also, he gets distracted by. Uh, sounds in speech and still often repeat bits of a word that he particularly enjoys or finds fascinating. Hmm. I, I guess I just have to read more. Um, yeah. And actually speaking of that and reading more on how to read these for the Occasional lunatic amongst the audience who wants to know more, the author has made the books freely available. Yep, you can go download a zip file of the EPUBs of the entire series uh, for free from her website. I'll see if I can uh, find a link to put in the description. So yeah, go get these books. They're wild. You should read them. All right. I think we've hit the word count for today. Yeah, uh, we've gotten to about an hour on Animorphs. Yeah. <laughs> I could I'm almost certain, do a whole nother hour. I'm certain you could. Uh, it's got 54 books. That's a lot of material to dig into. Fifty-four main books. True. The uh the companion books are well, there's only eight of them, but on the other hand, each one of them is at least twice as long as, each, as one of the main series. So, yeah. I think it's time to wrap this up. Yeah. I don't see any new mail in the mailbag, so if you want to dispute any character interpretations or uh, story interpretations that we have, I have said here today, you can shoot us an email. Uh, 
Our address is fanfictapes at gmail.com. You can also leave us a comment on our YouTube channel or leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, You can also yell at Maya over on Twitter. She'll make sure that I see it. That I will. So, uh... If you want to scream at Ian for getting you uh, to consider trying this series... We're there at Fan Fiction Tapes, capital F, capital T, in the usual places. So, this is the end of the episode, the end of season two, and the end of 2023. What can people expect in 2024? More insanity. I mean, more normality. Our first episode after we come back from our end-of-season break is on the importance of diversity in cast and characters, and that general theme is where we are going to start the year off. Yes, January we will be talking about various aspects of character and character design and character creation. Uh, We will also be having a slight change in our general schedule. Uh, we've decided that there's way more stories that we want to talk about than there are tropes that we want to talk about. So you can expect a story spotlight every month and just an occasional trope talk whenever we have an extra episode to fill going forward. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how that works out. We, um, we think we'll enjoy the formula a bit more as we get to be very normal in your years about something for an hour. Or more, but um, we try to keep it down to about an hour. Yes. Well, the fanfic tapes will return in January. Until then, I have been Ian. I'm Maya. Until next time. <laughs>